It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome to the reading of the New York Times. For Monday, September 12, 2022. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. The New York Times is donated to Radio Eye by the Lexington Herald Leader. Your reader for today is Mary Fullington. We'll start today's reading with the Merriam Webster Word of the Day, which is invective. I-N-V-E-C-T-I-V-E. Invective means, quote, insulting or abusive language. It can also refer to an abusive expression or speech. Her opening campaign speech was, to the shock of everyone present, filled with invective, that contrasted sharply with the expectations of those in attendance. Invective. And now, continuing with the New York Times for Monday, September 12, 2022, Stunned Moscow Admits to Losing Most of Kharkiv. Retreat Dense Image of a Mighty Putin by Anton Tronovsky. Ukraine's rout of Russian forces this weekend is creating a new kind of political challenge for President Vladimir V. Putin. It undercuts the image of competence and might that he has worked for two decades to build. On Sunday, the Russian military continued to retreat from positions in northeastern Ukraine that it had occupied for months. State television news reports referred to the retreat as a carefully planned regrouping operation, praising the heroism and professionalism of Russian troops. But the, upbeat, but the upbeat message did little to dampen the anger among supporters of the war over the retreat and the Kremlin's handling of it. And it hardly obscured the bind that Mr. Putin now finds himself in, presiding over a six-month war against an increasingly energized enemy and a Russian populace that does not appear to be prepared for the sacrifices that could come with an escalating conflict. Quote, strength is the only source of Putin's legitimacy. Abbas Galyamov, a former speechwriter for Mr. Putin who is now a political consultant living in Israel, said in a phone interview, and in situation in which it turns out that he has no strength, his legitimacy will start dropping towards zero. As Ukraine pressed its advantage on Sunday, seizing towns and territory, Mr. Putin escalated the brutality of his campaign, a concession to the pro-war voices on Russian television and social media. Missile strikes on infrastructure across eastern and central Ukraine plunged parts of the country into darkness. But it was unclear how far Russia, with its cyber, chemical, and nuclear arsenals, might be willing to go to halt Ukraine's momentum even as the scale of the battlefield setback became clearer and more evidence emerged of disarray inside Russia's ruling class. Ramzan Kadyrov, the strongman leader of the Chechnya region in southern Russia that has sent thousands of its own troops to Ukraine, accused the Russian military of making mistakes and failing to explain the retreat to the public. Sergei Miranov, the leader of a pro-Putin party in parliament, criticized the authorities for celebrating Moscow's annual city day this weekend, posting on Twitter, quote, it cannot be and should not be that our guys are dying today and we are pretending that nothing is happening. Because of some mistakes known to us, control over political processes is being lost, a pro-Kremlin analyst who often appears on state television, Sergei Markov, said on social media. I guarantee you that this confusion will not last long, but right now, it's a mess. 
The fundamental problem, analysts said, is that Mr. Putin's penchant for misleading his own people is catching up to him. The reality of the Russian setback is poking holes in the Kremlin's message that the Russian army is undefeatable. Ukraine is riddled with corruption and cowardice, and Mr. Putin is a brilliant geopolitical strategist. It was just last Wednesday that Mr. Putin declared that Russia had not lost anything as a result of the war, an assertion at odds with Western estimates of tens of thousands of Russian casualties. For now, the war's supporters have mainly directed their anger over this weekend's setbacks at Moscow bureaucrats or at the military leadership. But an early indication that the frustration could damage Mr. Putin's own prestige came on the Telegram social network after Moscow went ahead with a grand fireworks display on Saturday evening to mark the 875th anniversary of the city's founding. A slap in the face to the Russian military, some said, on perhaps the most humiliating day for Russia since the invasion began on February 24th. Quote, we won't support this government in the 2024 elections, the administrators of a pro-war telegram account with more than 400,000 followers said, referring to Russia's next presidential election. It's been a long time coming, but this is the last drop. The discontent was evident even in Moscow, a city that the authorities have worked to shield from the costs of war. As Moscow residents celebrated the city's birthday this weekend with concerts and block parties, Vladislav, a taxi driver who moved to a city near Moscow from the Krasnoyarsk region in Siberia, looked upon all of the celebratory flags and stages with a bit of scorn. He said his 34-year-old cousin had been killed two weeks ago near Donetsk in Ukraine's Donbass region after having been conscripted into the pro-Russian forces. Quote, here, people are drinking late through the night, he complained on Sunday morning after a weekend of revelry in the city. No one cares about what is happening on the front. Tatyana Stanovaya, a Russian political analyst, said that the Kremlin's decision to play down the intensity and scale of the war in Ukraine had created parallel worlds. The reality of Europe's biggest land war in generations, on the one hand, and the business-as-usual atmosphere in Moscow on the other. The strategy to describe the war as a special military operation that need not affect most Russians' daily lives relied on the expectation that Russia would quickly win it, she said. But with setback after setback, the fact that things are not going according to plan is becoming increasingly difficult to hide. Quote, the Kremlin, in principle, based its entire policy on the idea that there can be no defeats, she said. They didn't prepare for the fact that there could be a collision with this second parallel world. There were signs Sunday evening that the Kremlin was responding to the criticism that it was not being honest with the public about the extent of the recent recent setbacks. On the main weekly news show on state television, the presenter, Dmitry Kiselyov, described the last weeks as probably one of the most difficult since the start of the war. Under the onslaught of superior enemy forces, the Allied forces were forced to leave the previously liberated settlements, Mr. Kislyov said, referring to Russia's alliance with Kremlin-backed separatists in eastern Ukraine. It was a rare acknowledgment on the airways of what pro-Russian military bloggers have been warning about for weeks, with the Kremlin appearing determined to avoid a nationwide draft to increase the ranks of its army, Russia's forces are outnumbered by the Ukrainians in many parts of the front line. There were also signs that the Kremlin could be trying to escalate its military campaign, as supporters of the war have long said it should. A Russian strike knocked out power and water Sunday evening to much of the northeastern city of Kharkiv, the city's mayor said, referring to the attack as an act of revenge. Quote, it seems it's time to get rough, the host Vladimir Solovyov said on his state television network show earlier on Sunday, complaining that Russia had not done enough to break Ukraine's military and fuel supply lines. It's just time to get rough. How badly this weekend's battlefield setbacks hurt Mr. Putin politically will depend most of all, of course, on his ability to reverse them, while continuing to shelter Russians from the consequences of Western sanctions. This week, Mr. Putin is expected to meet with President Xi Jinping of China at a regional summit in Uzbekistan, seeking to expand a critical relationship for Russia as it pursues economic partners outside the West. 
Mr. Galyamov, the former speechwriter, said the struggles in Ukraine could lead the elites around the Russian president to push for a successor to be appointed. If they continue to destroy the Russian army as actively as they are now, Mr. Galyanov said of Ukraine's forces, then all this can accelerate even faster. Ukraine routes Russian forces in Northeast, forcing a retreat. By Andrew E. Kramer and Andrew Higgins. Stunned by a lightning advance by Ukrainian forces that cost it over 1,000 square miles of land and a key military hub, Russia on Sunday acknowledged that it had lost nearly all of the northern region of Kharkiv after a blitzkrieg thrust that cast doubt on a premise, widely held in Moscow and parts of the West, that Ukraine could never defeat Russia. Russia's pell-mell retreat from a wide section of Ukrainian territory it seized in the early summer rattled Kremlin cheerleaders and amplified voices in the West demanding that more weapons be sent to Ukraine so that it could win. Victory for Ukraine is still far from certain, particularly with a second Ukrainian offensive in the South making far less rapid progress. Russian forces are dug into strong defensive positions near the Black Sea port city of Kherson, forcing Ukrainian troops to pay heavily for every foot of territory they retake. But the speed of Ukraine's advances over the weekend in the northeast, an area used by Russia as a stronghold, has muted the gung-ho bluster of Kremlin cheerleaders. It has also undermined arguments in places like Germany that providing more and better arms to Ukraine would only lead to a long and bloody stalemate against a Russian military destined to win. Late Sunday, in a strike that Ukrainian officials condemned as a fit of pique over its losses, Moscow attacked infrastructure facilities in Kharkiv, leaving many civilians without power and water. President Vladimir Zelensky said there was a total blackout in the regions of Kharkiv and Donetsk. No military facilities, he wrote on Twitter. The goal is to deprive people of light and heat. Russia's retreat in the Northeast is the biggest embarrassment for President Vladimir V. Putin's larger and better equipped forces since their attempt to seize, to seize Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, was repelled at the start of the invasion. Amid heavy casualties, logistical problems, and declining morale in Russia's military, its performance has prompted discontent among pro-Kremlin bloggers and staunch Putin loyalists, creating new challenges for the Russian leader. Among them is the collapse of a widespread assumption both inside and outside Russia that Russia would inevitably triumph in the end. On Sunday, Ukraine's defense ministry claimed that its forces had advanced to a checkpoint near the Russian border in northeastern Ukraine, Haptivka, an assertion that could not be independently confirmed. Ukrainian allies rejoiced at Russia's battlefield setbacks. Quote, Let me be frank, said Gabrielius Landsbergis, the foreign minister of Lithuania, one of Ukraine's most steadfast supporters. It is now beyond doubt that Ukraine could have thrown Russia out months ago if they had been provided with the necessary equipment from day one. Speaking at a news conference with his German counterpart, Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuliba, said, And so I reiterate, the more weapons, weapons we receive, the faster we will win, and the faster this war will end. Ukraine's rapid gains followed increased intelligence sharing with the United States, American officials said. Over the summer, as they planned their counteroffensive in the Northeast, Ukrainian officials began to offer more real-time intelligence to their American counterparts, a shift that allowed the United States to provide better and more relevant information about Russian weaknesses, officials said. American officials welcomed Ukraine's rapid advance as a heartening development, but senior Pentagon and White House officials urged caution voicing doubts about the capacity of Ukrainian forces to push Russia back to the lines that existed on February 23rd, the day before the invasion. Still, they said that the progress suggested the Russian forces were in significant disarray. For months now, administration officials have said there is no hope of a diplomatic solution to the war unless Mr. Zelensky's forces win back enough territory to have the upper hand in any negotiated ceasefire or armistice. But the fear is that if Mr. Putin believes he is losing the war, he may deploy unconventional weapons. 
Military analysts are debating whether Ukraine's successes in the north were the result of an ingenious ruse aimed at diverting Russia's strength toward the south. A Ukrainian counteroffensive there that was telegraphed for weeks may have been partly a feint, they say. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In a sign of the shock and even despair spreading through the ranks of the war's most vocal supporters in Russia, Ramzan Kadyrov, the strongman leader of Chechnya and a staunch Putin loyalist, criticized the Russian army's leadership on Sunday and expressed dismay over its performance in northeastern Ukraine. Russia's Ministry of Defense had made made mistakes, he said, in a post on social media, and the military and national leadership needed to explain the real situation on the ground. But far from acknowledging the setbacks, the official journal of the Russian government, Rossiskaya Gazeta, headlined its main war report on Sunday with an account of how the Kyiv regime had suffered heavy casualties. It claimed that more than 4,000 Ukrainian soldiers had been killed from Tuesday to Saturday. And the authorities in Moscow presented the route in the Northeast as a planned regrouping. The Institute for the Study of War, a research group in Washington, gave a starkly different assessment. In a report, it said that Russia's northeast northern front was collapsing and dismissed claims by Moscow that its troops had simply been ordered to regroup. Russian forces, the Institute said, are not conducting a controlled withdrawal and are hurriedly fleeing. In Kyiv, the mood was euphoric. We've been waiting for this for a long time, said Rumel Kabibulin, an actor. My wife, my children, me, all of our spirits are lifted. I think it's a big turning point in the war, and Russia will fall apart. With nearly all news outlets in Russia in the grip of the Kremlin, however, there was little sign of eroding public support for Mr. Putin or for the war that the Kremlin insists on describing as a special military operation. Schooled from childhood about how the armies of Napoleon, then Hitler, won battles all the way to Moscow, only to be crushed in the end, Many Russians are programmed to believe official claims that their country, no matter what the setbacks of the moment, is marching to eventual victory. Few people have much knowledge of Russia's catastrophic 1904 and to 1905 war with Japan, which, like the invasion of Ukraine, was driven by imperial hubris and contempt for an enemy that Tsar Nicholas II expected to crumble, crumble in a short, victorious war. Russia lost much of its navy and suffered total defeat at the hands of Japan, a humiliation that helped fuel Russia's 1905 revolution. For the moment, the Kremlin is sticking to breezy denials of defeats and business-as-usual insouciance by Mr. Putin, who, as Russian lines buckled on Saturday in the Kharkiv region, inaugurated a giant Ferris wheel in a Moscow park. Reports from social media said the wheel quickly broke down, leaving riders stranded in the air. After presiding over festive fireworks on Saturday celebrating the 875th anniversary of Moscow's founding, Mr. Putin turned his attention back to his war in Ukraine on Sunday when, according to a Kremlin statement, he spoke by phone with President Emmanuel Macron of France, their first conversation since August 15th. While insisting that it had inflicted serious damage on Ukrainian forces, the defense ministry in Moscow obliquely acknowledged that the war was not going according to plan. It released a map on Sunday that indicated Russian troops had been driven, had been driven from nearly all of the Kharkiv region and now controlled only a sliver of land on its eastern edge along the Oskol River. One Russian military blogger, Yuri Podolyaka, 
reported that Russian forces had been ordered to evacuate the entire region. No such order has been confirmed, but Russian forces, thrown into disarray by the pace of Ukraine's advance, are clearly now focused on preventing losses in the adjacent regions of Luhansk and Donetsk. Other Russian military bloggers who generally cheer the war effort, but also offer a less varnished take on reality on the ground than state media outlets, reported that Ukraine was now attacking the small city of Lyman, seized by Russia in May, and that Russian forces there were in need of reinforcements. Lyman's mayor, Alexander Zurelviv, told the Ukrainian news media that as of Saturday night, the fighting was still underway. The Russian military is still resisting, he said. Our flag is not there yet. The capture of Lyman would be another serious reversal of fortunes for Russia, whose seizure of the city in early summer presaged what at the time seemed like an inexorable and irreversible Russian campaign to conquer the area, including the bigger nearby towns of Severodonetsk and Lyschansk. On Sunday, Mr. Zelensky claimed that Ukrainian forces had recaptured Kalovsk, a village in the Kharkov region that lies roughly halfway between Izium, an important Russian military hub seized back by Ukraine on Saturday, and Ukraine's second-largest city, Kharkiv, which has been struck repeatedly by Russian forces. Suggesting the Blitz still has room to run, Serhii Grabsky, a former Ukrainian army colonel and commentator on the war for Ukrainian news media, said that when troops fell back in disarray, as Russians were now doing, they tend to unnerve the soldiers they encounter as they fled. They will spread demoralization to other troops, he said. But reaching too far could leave the Ukrainian army stretched thin and vulnerable, Mr. Grabisky warned. Now, and it's painful for me to say as a Ukrainian, we have to decide where to stop, he said. Turning to news in the United States, in Atlanta, a local prosecutor takes on murder, street gangs, and a president. By Richard Fawcett. Fanny T. Willis strode up to a podium in a red dress late last month in downtown Atlanta, flanked by an array of dark suits and stone-faced officers in uniform. Her voice rang out loud and clear with a hint of swagger. Quote, if you thought Fulton was a good county to bring your crime to, to bring your violence to, you are wrong, she said, facing a bank of news cameras, and you are going to suffer consequences. Ms. Willis, the district attorney for Fulton County, Georgia, had called the news conference to talk about a street gang known as Drug Rich, whose members had just been indicted in a sprawling racketeering case. But she could have been talking about another crew that she is viewing as a possible criminal enterprise, former President Donald J. Trump and his allies who tried to overturn his narrow 2020 election loss in Georgia. In recent weeks, Ms. Willis has called dozens of witnesses to testify before a special grand jury investigating efforts to undo Mr. Trump's defeat, including a number of prominent pro-Trump figures who traveled, against their will, from other states. It was, it was long-arm of the law stuff, and it emphasized how her investigation, though playing out more than 600 miles from Washington, D.C., is no sideshow. Rather, the Georgia inquiry has emerged as one of the most consequential legal threats to the former president, and it is already being shaped by Ms. Willis's distinct and forceful personality and her conception of how a local prosecutor should do her job. Her comfort in the public eye stands in marked contrast to the low-key approach of another Trump legal pursuer, Attorney General Merrick B. Garland. Ms. Willis, 50, a Democrat, is the first black woman to lead Georgia's largest district attorney's office. In her 19 years as a prosecutor, she has led more than 100 jury trials and handled hundreds of murder cases. Since she became chief prosecutor, her office's conviction rate has stood at close to 90%, according to a spokesperson. Her experience is the source of her confidence, which appears unshaken by the scrutiny and criticism the Trump case has brought. She tends to speak as if the world were her jury box. Sometimes she is colloquial and warm. In a recent interview, she noted, as an aside, how much she loved Valentine's Day. Quote, put that in there in case I get a new boo, she said but she can also throw sharp elbows. In a heated email exchange in July over the terms of a grand jury appearance by Governor Brian Kemp, a Republican, 
Ms. Willis called the governor's lawyer, Brian McAvoy, quote, wrong and confused and rude, among other things. Quote, you have taken my kindness as weakness, she wrote, adding, despite your disdain, this investigation continues and will not be derailed by anyone's antics. The phrase, quote, I don't like a bully, is one Miss Willis deploys often. After taking office in January, she had a quote from Malcolm X painted on the wall as a sort of mission statement. Quote, I'm for truth no matter who tells it. I'm for justice no matter who it is for or against. Ms. Willis, as a child, split time between her divorced parents. Her father was a former Black Panther and criminal defense lawyer who practiced in the Washington, D.C. area. He brought her to the courthouse often and put her to work as his file clerk starting in elementary school. A career in law, she said, was never in doubt. She attended Howard University, then moved to Atlanta to attend Emory Law School. She felt at home in Atlanta. As an undergraduate, she had attended Freaknik, the boisterous, mostly black Atlanta street party that became a headache for city leaders and an inspiration for the novelist Tom Wolfe's satirical exploration of the southern city and its racial divides. She settled down in the area, raising two girls as a working single parent and finding her calling in the prosecutor's office. She took on murder cases for eight years straight. Quote, I wore a pager and got up in the middle of the night and walked over bodies, she said, and I know what kind of pain it causes when you lose someone. The experience helped set her on a philosophical course to the right of America's new wave of progressive prosecutors, as well as her liberal father, And in parentheses, we have knocked down, drag them out arguments, she said, but to the left of the traditional lock them up crowd. We have all these extreme people who think there should not be prisons. They're crazy, she said. There are people out here who will take your life and think nothing of it. Go have lunch like literally think zero about taking your life. And they have to be removed from society. But then you also have these other crazy people who think everyone should go to jail. That's also kind of, that's crazy, right? She has declined to answer questions about the likely course of her investigation as it specifically pertains to Mr. Trump, but his indictment in Georgia remains a plausible scenario, particularly given his call to the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, in January 2021, in which the then-president asked Mr. Raffensperger to, quote, find the votes to put him over the top. Some legal experts contend that this call alone may have violated a state law against the solicitation to commit election fraud. Ms. Willis has indicated that she may pursue the range of election meddling efforts in Georgia as a multi-defendant racketeering case, much as she has against drug rich and other street gangs. It is unclear what this means for Mr. Trump, who has spent his business and political career wiggling out from complicated legal entanglements. He commands a loyal and enormous following, a multi-million dollar war chest for paying lawyers, and a bully pulpit that never shuts down. In May, he took to his social media site, Truth Social, to blast Ms. Willis. Quote, the young, ambitious, radical left Democrat prosecutor from Georgia, who is presiding over one of the most crime-ridden and corrupt places in the USA, Fulton County, has put together a grand jury to investigate an absolutely perfect phone call to the Secretary of State, Mr. Trump wrote. Ms. Willis, in the interview, was asked to respond. Quote, I mean, if crime happens in my jurisdiction, who's going to investigate it? She said, adding, I do not have the right to look the other way on a crime that could have impacted a major right of people in this community and throughout the nation. Atlanta, which lies mostly in Fulton County, certainly has its share of crime. The city recorded its 100th homicide of the year on August 10th, surpassing the number of homicides for all of 2019. Burglaries and breaking and entering cases are up nearly 20% over last year, according to Atlanta police statistics. These are a big city prosecutor's more traditional concerns, and adding Trump world to Miss Willis's caseload has made for some odd juxtapositions. On August 29th, her office filed a brief in federal court arguing why the U.S. Constitution should not shield Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, a Trump ally, from testifying. That same day, Ms. Willis was telling the media how the drug-rich gang had targeted local celebrities, including Marlo Hampton, a star of the show The Real Housewives of Atlanta, in a string of home invasions and burglaries. 
Ms. Willis said she was a fan of the show, and she warned the city's reality stars against showing viewers where they kept their most valuable possessions. It's just not wise to do, she said. Before the Trump investigation, Ms. Willis's most high-profile case as an assistant prosecutor was against a group of Atlanta public school system educators who were indicted in 2013 and charged with racketeering for altering students' standardized test scores in an effort to protect their jobs and win favor and bonuses from administrators. Ms. Willis said the size of that case, with its 3,000-person witness list, helped prepare her for the Trump inquiry. She also learned how to handle intense controversy. Most of the defendants were black. So were many of her critics, who were displeased by the sight of teachers from a struggling urban school district put on trial. She was called a sellout, she said, and worse. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Her biggest misstep in the Trump case came in July when a judge strictly limited her office's involvement in the investigation of Burt Jones, a state senator and the Republican nominee for lieutenant governor. Mr. Jones was one of 16 Republicans who signed documents identifying themselves as presidential electors and pledged their votes to Mr. Trump. All 16 have been told by the DA's office that they are targets of the investigation. But Mr. Jones' lawyer brought up the fact that Ms. Willis had headlined a fundraiser for Mr. Jones' Democratic rival, Charlie Bailey. The presiding judge called it an untenable conflict. Anthony Michael Kreese, a law professor at Georgia State University, called it a huge misstep. Ms. Willis said she would not have attended the fundraiser if she could do it over again, but she said that she had grown close to Mr. Bailey when she ran the DA's trial division, and he worked for her. He's one of my babies, as I like to call him, she said. These days, her critics come from the left and right. Phil Kent, a conservative-leaning Georgia political commentator, argued that Ms. Willis's priorities were misplaced. She is wasting time, money, and resources on the special grand jury that ought to be applied to going after the backlog of cases, especially when there's rising violent crime, he said. Ms. Willis said that she has just five lawyers working on the Trump case out of a total of roughly 140 on her staff. Some liberals, meanwhile, have criticized her use of rap lyrics in building, an anti-gang, in building her anti-gang cases, which have included charges against notable Atlanta hip-hop stars like Young Thug and Gunna. The drug-rich indictment, for example, makes use of boastful lyrics by alleged associates of the gang in a YouTube video, quote, If we steal a car, we gonna take off the tag, citing them as an overt act in furtherance of racketeering activity. Ms. Willis stands by the tactic, quote, If you decide to admit your crimes over a beat, I'm going to use it. She has received violent threats since May from people angry over the indictment of Young Thug and members of his crew. Before that, she had asked the Federal Bureau of Investigation to provide intelligence and federal agents and to increase security at the Fulton County Courthouse after Mr. Trump referred to her and other prosecutors as vicious, horrible people at a rally in January. Gerald A. Griggs, president of the Georgia NAACP, who worked with Ms. Willis in the Atlanta Solicitor's Office years ago, called Ms. Willis a phenomenal prosecutor. But she's drinking the Kool-Aid, said Mr. Griggs, who added that she was focusing too much on incarcerating poor black people and not doing enough to address social ills. In response, Ms. Willis rattled off a list of innovations she had implemented, 
including changes to alternative sentencing and diversion programs and a criminal justice class for public school children. Mr. Griggs, she said, don't know what he's talking about. Trump asked Judge to keep blocking FBI from working with seized, classified files by Alan Feuer and Charlie Savage. Lawyers for former Don President Donald J. Trump asked a federal judge on Monday to deny the Justice Department's request to immediately restart a key part of its criminal investigation into his hoarding of sensitive do government documents at his residence in Florida renewing their request for an expansive independent review of records seized from Mr. Trump, the former president's legal team argued that documents marked as classified should remain off-limits to the FBI and prosecutors. They asked the judge, Eileen M. Cannon, to maintain her order barring agents from using any of the materials taken from his estate until an outside arbiter, known as a special master, has vetted all of them. The 21-page filing was an aggressive rebuke of the Justice Department's broader inquiry into whether Mr. Trump or his aides illegally kept national security secrets at his property Mar-a-Lago or obstructed the government's repeated attempts to retrieve the materials. It played down the criminal inquiry as a storage dispute and insinuated that officials might have leaked information about the contents of the files. This investigation of the 45th President of the United States is both unprecedented and misguided, the filing said. In what, at its core, is a document storage dispute that has spiraled out of control, the government wrongfully seeks to criminalize the possession by the 45th President of his own presidential and personal records. The filing on Monday was the latest salvo in what threatens to become a protracted court fight over a special master, and the powers that person should have in filtering the trove of seized documents. Central to that dispute is whether the special master's review should extend to blocking investigators from using any records potentially protected by executive privilege. The filing, which came as Mr. Trump returned to the Washington area, underscored how he has succeeded for now in using what amounts to a procedural sideshow to stall the criminal investigation even after his representatives falsely said in June that his office had returned any documents marked as classified in his possession. Prosecutors had asked Judge Cannon last week to let investigators resume working with about 100 documents marked as classified that formed a small portion of the nearly 13,000 items the FBI seized during a court-ordered search of Mar-a-Lago on August 8th. They said the prohibition on using those materials was hindering the intelligence community's review of potential harm caused by the insecure storage of national security secrets and a classification review of the materials, arguing that those efforts were inextricably intertwined with the criminal investigation. But on Monday, Mr. Trump's lawyers dismissed the government's claims, saying that those assertions appeared to be exaggerated and that only a brief pause would be required for the special master's review to be completed. On Friday, Mr. Trump's lawyers indicated that they expected the review to take three months. This convenient and belated claim by the government relative to enjoining the criminal's team's success the criminal team's access to these documents only arises because the FBI concedes the intelligence community review is actually just another facet of its criminal investigation, they argued. But Mr. Trump's filing left open an ambiguous possibility that the FBI could undertake further actions related to the documents, including using criminal investigative tools like subpoenas if their purpose was to assist the intelligence community's risk assessment. That concession did not address the possibility that such actions could also further the criminal inquiry. The dispute over the special master has already delayed a briefing on the seized materials to top leaders in Congress and leaders of congressional intelligence committees, a person familiar with the matter said. The clash traces back to an order issued early last week by Judge Cannon, a Trump appointee, in which she said she would appoint a special master with broad authority to review all the seized materials. In her order, the judge said that they could be scrutinized not only for any potentially covered by attorney-client privilege, a relatively common measure, but also for executive privilege, which would be unprecedented in a federal criminal inquiry. 
As part of her order, Judge Cannon told the Justice Department that it would have to wait until the special master's work was done to use any of the records in its investigation. But the judge conceded that the intelligence community could use the materials in a separate assessment of how the former president's hoarding of the records might have affected national security. On Thursday, the Justice Justice Department shot back, telling Judge Cannon in yet another filing that the intelligence assessment and the criminal inquiry were inextricably linked. Prosecutors asked her to lift her ban on using the seized materials and requested she restrict the scope of the special master's review to unclassified documents, excluding about 100 seized files bearing classification labels. Moreover, prosecutors informed her that if she did not grant By Thursday, their request to stay, the portion of her ruling that is keeping investigators from working with the documents marked as classified, they would ask the Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit in Atlanta to intervene and block it. The Justice Department and Mr. Trump's lawyers have also sparred over the question of who should be appointed a special master. Last week, each each side submitted two candidates to Judge Cannon, who will ultimately decide who gets the job. Both sides said in a joint filing late Friday that they would tell her by Monday what they thought of each other's proposals. The Justice Department has suggested two retired federal judges, Barbara S. Jones, who formerly sat on the federal district court for the Southern District of New York, and Thomas B. Griffith, who formerly sat on the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. The Trump legal team has countered with a former federal judge, Raymond J. Deary, who formerly sat on the Federal District Court for the Eastern District of New York, and Paul Huck, Jr., a a former Deputy Attorney General in Florida. In the filing on Monday, Mr. Trump's legal team sidestepped the question of whether he had declassified all the documents he took to Mar-a-Lago as he has insisted outside of court. His lawyers said that as president, Mr. Trump had the authority to declassify anything he wanted and referred to the files as purported classified record. But they stopped short of affirmatively stating that he had declassified any files that the FBI seized. No credible evidence has emerged to support that assertion, and lawyers face professional consequence for making false claims in court. In news related to Queen Elizabeth's death, anti-monarchists tread lightly after Queen's death, but their goal persists. By Patrick Kingsley. When Queen Elizabeth II died on Thursday, the most prominent anti-monarchist movement in Britain did what it had been planning to do for years upon her death. It lay low. Republic, a group founded in 1983 that campaigns for an elected head of state and wants the monarchy abolished, instead released a short statement of condolence to the royal family that acknowledged its right to grieve and pledged to avoid further commentary for the immediate future. Normal business then tentatively resumed on Saturday when Republic criticized King Charles III's formal accession to the throne as undemocratic while still expressing every sympathy for King Charles as he mourned his mother. Quote, it's just a sensible thing to do, really, said Graham Smith, Republic's chief executive. Let all this run its course, and we will get into the more serious things later. This is the careful line that Britain's leading anti-monarchists, known as Republicans, believe they must tread in the early days of the new reign, balancing long-term opportunity with short-term pitfalls. Polling shows that Britons are far less enamored with Charles than with his mother, providing Republican campaigners with their biggest chance to build momentum in a quarter century. But they are wary of alienating potential supporters by appearing to be unmoved by the outpouring of grief for the Queen. The United Kingdom, or the nation that dominates it, England, has been led by a hereditary monarch for more than nine centuries, barring a brief period of Republican rule in the 1600s. While monarchs gradually ceded governing power to Parliament over the centuries, it still governs in the monarch's name, and the king or queen still plays a significant, if almost entirely symbolic, role in important British functions, 
the transition from one government to another, the administration of the Church of England, and the judicial system. Republican campaigners want to change all of that by replacing a hereditary king or queen with an elected president. Since the end of the short-lived British Republic in 1660, the concept has rarely, if ever, attracted significant popular support, but it has had its moments. Thomas Paine, the anti-monarchist philosopher whose writing helped build the intellectual underpinnings of the American Revolution, was born in Britain and wrote at least one of his major works there. More recently, in 1991, Tony Benn, a prominent left-wing lawmaker, tried to get Parliament to vote to abolish the monarchy. In 2000, the Guardian newspaper led a campaign for the creation of a republic, hoping to spur public debate. Both efforts failed. And for years, campaigners have known that the accession of King Charles, more awkward and opinionated than his mother, and less popular, would represent their best chance of garnering support for their cause. Polling in May showed that Charles' national approval rating stood at 65%, 21 points lower than the Queen's. Charles has neither the kind of celebrity, the kind of charisma, or the kind of authority of years that Elizabeth had, said David Edgerton, a historian of 20th century British history. For now, most British Republicans are biding their time. One protester disrupted a proclamation on Sunday in Oxford about the King's accession, leading to his arrest, while another was arrested in Edinburgh in a separate incident. But Republicans have otherwise mostly left the streets to the thousands of mourners and well-wishers. The Green Party, one of the few British political parties to include opposition to the monarchy's political role in its manifesto, called the Queen's death a moment of great sadness for our nation, avoiding any hint of criticism. Opponents of the monarchy who have taken a less diplomatic position, criticizing the public for falling victim to establishment groupthink, for example, have been called out by other Republicans for estranged for estranging would-be allies. A republicanism that has no faith in the public is no republicanism at all, wrote one columnist in Spiked, a libertarian online magazine that opposes the monarchy, but often takes potshots at what it often sees as the, quote, woke left. Still, some see an opportunity once the queen is buried and the public's focus shifts to Charles. Quote, we will be campaigning pretty hard from not long after the funeral through to the coronation said Mr. Smith, the head of Republic. The Queen, he said, was, quote, a heat shield that deflected a lot of criticism, and you just don't get that with Charles. Quote, it's going to be a very much easier campaign to run, Mr. Smith added. While the Queen was generally seen as a paragon of personal virtue, Charles's judgment and propriety has been the subject of perpetual scrutiny from his time as a young prince even up until a few months ago. Among other controversies, the police announced an investigation in February into allegations that one of Charles's charities offered to help secure a knighthood and citizenship for a Saudi businessman in exchange for a large donation. Charles's spokesman said the royal had been unaware of any deal, and a top aide stepped down under pressure over the transaction. Charles is also remembered for his fractious divorce during the 1990s from his first wife, Diana, in which the news media often presented him as cold and distant. The public has largely moved on, as has Charles with his second marriage to Camilla, now the queen consort, but the impression that the split created has not entirely dissipated. Republicanism is also rising among a younger generation of Britons. An estimated 41% of Britons, 18 to 25, said they wanted an elected head of state according to polling from 2021, 15 points higher than in 2019. Demand for a republic has remained fairly static for decades. The most recent polling suggested nearly 70% of Britons support a monarchy about the same as in the early 1990s. But some commentators and historians believe that public backing for the monarchy is based less on a strong belief in the institution than an affection for the Queen herself, giving Republicans a glimmer of hope that they can swing opinion their way. Much of the current grief for the Queen is a reflection of her particular contribution to the nation and longevity of her reign, said Professor Edgerton, the historian. 
It's not a reaffirmation of the essence of the hereditary principle or an aristocratic principle, or even, actually, the notion of a constitutional monarchy. Part of the Queen's appeal was in the opacity of her beliefs, said Laura Clancy, who researches the public image of the royal family at the University of Lancaster. The Queen revealed little about her personal opinions, creating an aura of mystery about her core beliefs, allowing others to project onto her whatever views they hoped she might hold. Before and after Britain's exit from the European Union, the inscrutability of the Queen's own position allowed both supporters and critics of Brexit to claim her as their own. Quote, You couldn't possibly do that with Charles, Dr. Clancy said, because we know what he thinks about lots of things. Charles's views on architecture, aesthetics, and the environment are widely reported. He is seen by some as a meddler, achieving notoriety for sending handwritten messages to government ministers about political matters, messages known as black spider letters because of the messiness of his handwriting and the black ink of his pen. But even if Charles's accession offers a chance for Republicans to construct a different narrative about monarchy, commentators and campaigners say that any success will be slow. The ruling Conservative Party strongly supports the monarchy. The Labour Party, the largest opposition group, contains prominent Republicans, but an elected head of state is not a priority for the party, let alone official policy. Under Keir Starmer, the current Labour leader, the party has sought to build a reputation of sobriety and respect for tradition, an effort that would be undermined by pushing for a major constitutional change. A British Republic is still a very long way off, Dr. Clancy said. Instead, Charles's accession offers the chance for a slight shift in discourse. Quote, talking about republicanism in the UK is still actually quite taboo, Dr. Clancy said. Is there going to be a moment when it becomes less taboo? That's what I feel like is coming. And in related news, King Charles III gives his first remarks to Britain's Parliament as sovereign. Under the ancient vaulted timbers of Westminster Hall, King Charles III addressed Britain's Parliament on Monday for the first time as sovereign, accepting condolences and pledging to uphold the principles of the country's constitutional monarchy. Speaking from the chamber where the body of his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, will lie in state later this week, Charles said, quote, Parliament is the living and breathing instrument of our democracy. The ceremony showcased the harmonious and occasionally fraught intersection of British royalty and government. There were expressions of fealty from Parliament to the King and a reciprocal pledge by him to abide by the limits of his constitutional role, which stipulates that he remain above politics. But the Speaker of the House, Lindsay Hoyle, made a wry allusion to more turbulent times. King Charles I was tried on charges of tyranny and treason at West, in Westminster Hall in 1649, and outside it stands a statue of Oliver Cromwell, who led armies on Parliament's behalf against Charles in the English Civil War and went on to rule the country as Lord Protector. Quote, it is perhaps very British, Mr. Hoyle said, to take note of revolutions in a formal statement to the monarch. That drew a faint smile from the king. Charles struck a more poignant note, paying tribute to the queen, whom he said was a pattern to all princes living, quoting from Shakespeare. He referred to her constancy, symbolized by a stained glass window that was installed to celebrate her diamond jubilee in 2012. Quote, while very young, her late majesty pledged herself to serve her country and her people and to maintain the precious principles of constitutional government which lie at the heart of our nation, the king said. Quote, this vow she kept with unsurpassed devotion, Charles said. She set an example of selfless duty, which, with God's help and your counsels, I am resolved faithfully to follow. Prince Harry pays tribute to Granny, saying thanks for her infectious smile and sound advice by Daniel Victor. 
In his first public comment since the death of his grandmother, Queen Elizabeth II, Prince Harry paid tribute to Granny in a statement Monday morning, thanking her for her sound advice and her infectious smile. Written largely as if speaking directly to the Queen, Harry, 37, said he was grateful for the time he had spent with her, quote, from my earliest childhood memories with you, to meeting you for the first time as my commander-in-chief, to the first moment you met my darling wife and hugged your beloved great-grandchildren. He continued, quote, I cherish these times shared with you and the many other special moments in between. You are already sorely missed not just by us, but by the world over. Harry and his wife Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, have had a strained relationship with the royal family, particularly since they stepped back from royal duties in 2020. But Harry was said to have remained close with the Queen. The couple, who named their daughter Lilibet, after her childhood nickname, paid her a surprise visit in April. In what was widely perceived as an olive branch moment, Harry and Meghan made a rare joint appearance on Saturday with William and Catherine, the Prince and Princess of Wales, as the two brothers and their wives greeted crowds outside Windsor Palace. Expanded Safety Net Drives Sharp Drop in Child Poverty by Jason DeParle. For this article, the reporter worked closely for five months with researchers from a nonpartisan group to document the decline in child poverty and the forces pushing it lower. For a generation or more, America's high levels of child poverty set it apart from rich from other rich nations, leaving millions of young people lacking support as, a bas- as basic as food and shelter amid mounting evidence that early hardship leaves children poorer, sicker, and less educated as adults. But with little public notice and accelerating speed, America's children have become much less poor. A comprehensive new analysis shows that child poverty has fallen 59% since 1993, with need receding on, every, on nearly every front. Child poverty has fallen in every state, and it has fallen by about the same degree among children who are white, black, Hispanic, and Asian, living with one parent or two, and in native or immigrant households. Deep poverty, a form of especially severe deprivation, has fallen nearly as much. In 1993, nearly 28% of children were poor, meaning their households lack the income the government deemed necessary to meet basic needs. By 2019, before temporary pandemic aid drove it even lower, child poverty had fallen to about 11%. More than 8 million children remained in poverty, and despite shared progress, black and Latino children were about three times as likely as white children to be poor. With the poverty line low, about 29000 for a family of four in a place with typical living costs, many families who escape poverty in the statistical sense still experience hardship. Still, the sharp retreat of child poverty represents major progress and has drawn surprisingly little notice even among policy experts. It has coincided with profound changes to the safety net, which at once became more stringent and more generous. Starting in the 1990s, Tough welfare laws shrank cash aid to parents without jobs. But other subsidies grew, especially for working families and total federal spending on low-income children roughly doubled. To examine the drop in child poverty, the New York Times collaborated with Child Trends, a nonpartisan research group with an expertise in statistical analysis. The joint project relied on the data the Census Bureau uses to calculate poverty rates, but examined it over more years and in greater demographic demographic detail. The analysis found that multiple forces reduced child poverty, including lower unemployment, increased labor force participation among single mothers, and the growth of state-level minimum wages, but a dominant factor was the expansion of government aid. In 1993, Safety net programs cut child poverty by 9% from what it would have been absent the aid. By 1919, those programs had cut child poverty by 44%, 
and the number of children they removed from poverty more than tripled to 6.5 million. Quote, this is an outstanding decline in child poverty, said Dana Thompson, a co-author of the Child Trends Study. Its magnitude is unequaled in the history of poverty measurement, and the single largest explanation is the growth of the safety net. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this article. This concludes the reading of the New York Times for today. Your reader has been Mary Fullington. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions concerning this program, please feel free to call us at 859-422-6390. Thank you for listening, and now please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I.